Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 179 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Sarah Cipher. Here's a bit about Sarah. Freelance book editor and author of The Skin and Its Girl, which is going to be the main focus of our conversation today. The Skin and Its Girl, as you're listening to this on Tuesday, the 25th of April, it is out. Out. Go buy it. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. She has an MFA from the Program for Writers at Warren Wilson College, where she was a Rona Jaffe graduate creative writing fellow in fiction. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, New Ohio Review, North American Review, Leon, L-E-O-N as an acronym, Leon Literary Review, Crab Orchard Review, and others. She grew up in a Lebanese Christian family near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and lives in Washington, D.C. with her wife. So I skipped one on purpose there, Sarah. It's Majuscule, one of the literary... Majuscule. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. It's okay. Mike Lindgren is the editor. It's a it's a small online magazine, but um, he he puts out some really good stuff. Awesome. Well, good afternoon. Good evening. How are you? I'm fine, Peter. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. It's uh, the skin in this girl is an incredible read, and like I said, people to be listening. It's it's out. Um, talk to us about you know the good stuff, like where to buy it. Any you know any bookstore recommendations, um, and just also how it feels to be. As we're talking, you know, a day and a half, two days before it comes out. What's it like in all the midst of all this? I hope it's a lot of fun, but what's it like to have this book out in the world? Oh, wow. You know, I was just over at my sister's house this afternoon and everybody was asking me if I'm excited. And I said, that's one of the emotions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the the thought of it finally being out, I've worked on it for a very long time. Um, You know, I... I've I've had my uh, myself up to the eyeballs in the written word for as long as I can remember. Mm. Uh, my first one of my first paid jobs was at Walden Books. So, oh wow, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm dating myself a bit. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of of librarians. My sister's a librarian, booksellers. I mean, obviously, I'm going to encourage people to buy it from their local indie or bookshop.org mm-hmm. online if if that's what they prefer. But the audiobook is also really great. Oh, okay. um, yeah, just. The, the the publishing team has done a wonderful job with it. I'm 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 really happy to see it out and and to have been working with some really great people in the, over the last eighteen months. Yeah, and whichever the windows people are looking at, you can see the windows of the Zoom. You can see the 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 cover better in your shot. The cover is awesome. I was so excited about it. I mean, I you know you hear horror stories about if you're working with a big five publisher, you have no agency in that whole process, mm. and you know you get what they give you, but. Yeah. Um, Valentine at Penguin Random House has been absolutely inclusive. 
of my my input the, the whole way through. We went through this, you know, series of excellent meetings where I shared covers that inspired me and, uh-huh. and we talked through it. And I wrote a, a whole post about it on my Substack. stack. Um, oh, okay. But <laughs> yeah. So if anybody's really curious about the, the whole process of publishing yeah. a book, then my Substack is the place to go for that. Well, I'll definitely share that in the series notes in the episode. Thanks. Notes, that's mm-hmm. cool. Okay. Um, I would love. I would have loved to have seen written and illustrated by, but maybe you're not an illustrator, maybe not an artist, visual artist. Uh, you know, actually, I started out drawing before I was a writer. I mean, mm. on, um, my mother's side of the family, the Lebanese side of the family, um, there's just some incredible artists. I mean, a cousin who's a tattoo artist, my grandfather um, did wonderful wildlife paintings, mm. um, but it was always a hobby. And you know, I grew up with with their talent as a model. Um, but, you know, as one of the first women in my family to go to college and obviously the first person to, to be able to pursue the arts professionally, I, I'm just uh, so grateful to finally have gotten to this point with my writing and, yeah. and, you know, but there's some beautiful illustrations in the book. We hired an illustrator right. to, to draw a literal family tree, uh, oh, Romani, yeah. the, the family name means pomegranate. So the, the family tree is a pomegranate tree. One of the greatest fruits in the world, right? delicious top five i mean i don't know uh, <laughs> yeah so i mean you were talking about being a reader since since day one i would love to well maybe not literally day one <laughs> but uh, i would love to hear about your relationship with the written word talk about the the arts in your family and you know obviously writing is a, is a form of art did mm-hmm. you i mean monolingual english english did you grow up speaking other languages like how did that work as well and what were you reading as a kid Sure. I mean, I grew up uh, with English as my only language. Um, my my mother's side of the family, the Lebanese side, was uh, kind of fully assimilated at that point. I mean, we still went to the Syrian Orthodox Church. There was obviously the food, which was, you know, hold on to those recipes at all costs. Um, but by the time I was growing up, you know, my grandfather would speak a little bit of Arabic with kind of his generation, um, okay. who was left of them. And never really with us. I mean, I have a sort of um, like bastardized Arabic words for okay. a few things around the house that, that we used instead of the English word um, that I kind of figured out as a process of elimination with my <laughs> peers in school that these were not English words. Um, but, you know, I we were a, a kind of introverted bookish family. Um, you know, my mother read to me kind of before I could read. I, you know, trips to the library were always exciting. Mm-hmm. I volunteered at the library starting, I think, in middle school. I worked at Walden Books. I, you know, all of my work um, was editorial in nature. I'm a freelance book editor. I've done that for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I just read everything that I could get my hands on. I mean, storytelling was, you know, sort of oral storytelling as well as written storytelling is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in starting to think about the skin and its girl and what I was really trying to achieve, I was interested in the stories that don't get told too. So there was kind of an engagement with, with silence and absence of language. So sort of that contrast was really interesting to me as well. But growing up in a really small town, I mean, books were my way of teleporting elsewhere. I mean, I just the, the availability of, of other lives through books um, has always been a source of inspiration for me. Do you, do you feel like the reading you did was to to seek out those different worlds and to find yourself? I mean, the whole what is it, windows and windows and doors? I mean, did you, you know, all the different cultures and subcultures that make us all up? Did you feel like you saw yourself on the page, or did that not matter? 
You don't, I mean, in retrospect, no, I didn't see myself on the page. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, sexual orientation, if we're talking about sort of the, the identity markers that we're most fluent with at, you know, our, our moment. Hmm. Um, but I was a daydreamer of a kid. I mean, I loved science. I loved fairy tales. Um, I, I loved reading about other parts of the world. Uh, you know, I just, I mean, that was, that was the food for my imagination. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tell the story that, you know, I, I grew up in kind of the 80s and 90s. And for the longest time, you know, whenever Ellen DeGeneres came out, I thought a lesbian was one word, A-L-E-S-B-I-A-N. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I realized later my mistake, and it really speaks to how unspeakable Wow. alternative sexualities and queerness is, you know, as a whole, you know, it was just not, not present in my upbringing. Um, mm-hmm. Or if it was, it was a joke or, or negative. Uh-huh. Um, so it really, you know, kind of, you know, you, you asked about like finding myself. I mean, I, I think that was a, a process that came later, like, you know, when I finally left my small town public school and finally, you know, kind of came out and and kind of lived far far from where I grew up mm-hmm. I felt like that was when I could sort of read and you know have a community with some intentionality and and I think that is so important and I mean obviously you know we're talking about this at the time when there's you know 400 and some anti-LGBTQ um, bills against you know libraries and and trans rights and drag shows and I mean I I will die on this hill if I have to you know representation really does matter and you know Mm. like I said my sister is a librarian and you know they're seeing these unprecedented pushbacks from parents in in their school districts and you know it's an active um, resistance and and I think that we need to keep talking about this because it's important Thank you for that. When you, talking about putting, you know, words together. When you are you saying act of resistance, active resistance, both? I mean, <laughs> both, yes. Action where, matters, yes. <laughs> where do you feel like the the active resistance is coming from? It with libraries uh, and with the push. Like, how is that pushback coming? I guess. I mean, you, I'm I'm sharing the second hand from my sister, but I mean, it it sounds like that there are often a few, you know, vocal parents in a school district that take issue with books that you know are about you know, LGBTQ or queer content, um, you know, often not having read those books, but finding something objectionable in them and wanting to get them removed from the library. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when that, you know, here in Virginia, where I live, um, you know, that has gotten amplified with this draft bill to, you know, should we just shut down all libraries and we'll just take care of this problem once and for all. So, I mean, I don't think that's a a common sense solution. I don't think anyone would agree that that's a common sense solution. Um, but there, there's a unsettling radicalism about it. I mean, I, I grew up in a very conservative part of the country and I was never not encouraged to read and be curious about people. So I, you know, it's a tricky time, I think. Incredible regression, right? It seems like it in some places. Right. Right. And and like you said, it is a lot of times it is, does seem to be just a very vocal minority, but, but they're the ones that are often making the laws and. I mean, what a what a microcosm of a story. What a what a telling story about um, thinking a lesbian was one word. Is that is that the inspiration for a lot when <laughs> when, when Betty right when Betty's writing letters back and forth with a pen pal 
So you got, so you got no, corrected, but okay. <laughs> no, okay. but those were fun to write, to think about language, try to remember how I thought about language when I was eight and nine years old yeah. and the mistakes that I would make. And the, I don't know, I, th I think children just learning language bring mm -hmm. a, a really fresh view of it. But yes. I mean, it's, I mean, we quote unquote correct mistakes, but sometimes they're not mistakes and they can be really revealing. There's something really poetic about definitely that innocence mm -hmm. yeah i mean you have some really bold strokes in the book and which are so good and there's also some really subtle ones that i really enjoyed like i enjoyed um when is it pronounced nua nuha 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 mm -hmm. when she it was early on in the book and it was like i think she didn't answer the phone it was basically like what's the 78 year old misanthrope you know doing on a whatever night not answering the phone i thought that was pretty classic <laughs> like what else did she have to do and then and I also appreciate, you know, the how Anna was the one who corrected the girl. Anna was the one who corrected the, a lot. And it's like, I get that, too. When you're younger and you do learn those things, you're like, you're very authoritarian, authoritative, authoritarian on it, right? Like, no, this is the way it's done. I just learned it yesterday, but this is the way it's done. A lot <laughs> is two words. You know, my teacher told me, my sister told me. So you really you really capture a lot of those nuances and subtleties for sure. 20 years as an editor has, has taught uh -huh. me to not be a grammarian and that there's a... Uh, a much livelier kind of language available. I mean, especially as a fiction writer, I mean, you can't yeah. be uh, very Definitely. rigid. You were talking about, you know, how representation matters. How how did that kind of come into view for you as you got into high school and college? Like maybe who are some of the writers or mentors or, or works that really um, captured your attention? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, I was in an AP English class with only two other students. I mean, it was a very small high school. Wow. <laughs> and there was an exercise that we did that I still love it. And I still do it sometimes. And I, I often advise writers that I work with to try mm. um, that when you're trying to, to explore voices outside of your own or sort mm -hmm. of your default voice to read, you know, the work of whoever and try to mimic a few paragraphs of their style or like, you know, handwrite some of their passages as if they're what your own to kind of writing handwriting. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Do we still learn that? Um, I kidding. hope so. <laughs> but to, to, you know, copy a few paragraphs as if it's your own to kind of like give mm -hmm. your brain that muscle memory mm -hmm. and then try to get that sound in something that you write. So I think we did that exercise or the writer that I chose for that exercise was Franz Kafka. Ah. And, you know, it, I, I, magical realism and sort of absurdist uh, imaginative fiction and and horror and you know using using these genres as a way to write about uh, sort of real phenomenon in you know our experience that still informs my writing now mm. and I, so i mean up in up in you know in the 2020s 2023 who mm -hmm. Who would you do that exercise with? Who are some of the writers that you're just like, oh man, I can't wait for her next book, his next book, next short story, poem? Like, who are some of the writers? Oh, that wow. You? you know, I I just finished Patricia Engel's Infinite Country. Mm. And but she has such a, a, a deft, clean style that, you know, without sort of departing very far from realism, but, but still writing somewhat about, you know, Colombian folklore and, uh, mm borders and history and immigration that that 
you know, I write in these bold strokes and that she, she's a much more subtle writer. And I'd mm. like to learn some of those lessons, but who else have I been reading? Um, Katie Kitamura's Intimacies. Okay. Um, I really admired that style. I was reading a lot of um, W.G. Sebald during the pandemic because I was doing a lot of walking in national parks and taking uh -huh. pictures and, uh, sure. you know, the rings of Saturn, like sort of mm. like long uh, hypotactic sentences, um, you know, and then, you know, if that's one kind of autofiction, then I was reading Rachel Cusk and sort of surprised how simple the the voice is and, and sort of understanding how you can write either very sophisticated, you know, this like very ornate style or this very simple style, but still achieve this almost trance-like focus. Um, mm. You know, it, it's some thoughts that I'm bringing into my the current project that I'm working on, but, oh, you know, I just, I, I, I I need to encounter other voices because sometimes I get really sick of my own voice. <laughs> I forget who it was that I was talking to, but a co uh, college professor was saying that Katie Kimura, Katie Kimura, is that the right person? Uh, Katie Kitamura, yeah. Kitamura, she, that intimacy is like, is huge amongst his college population. Yeah, it, I, it's a lot of the writers that I'm friends with have read it. I mean, it's sort of recommended to me from all these different angles and I finally mm -hmm. read it and I found it just... I, intense and I mean intimate while the narrator is also sort of figuring herself out or, or, or trying to figure out um you know her, her place in the, this foreign city and, and this profession hmm. I don't know there's a lot going on and, and I I need to read it again actually just hmm. to to understand all, all yeah. of all of what she had activated in there but it's a wonderful novel huh. I wonder about like just like muses and creativity. I mean, mm -hmm. you talk about, um, you know, giving yourself uh, activities or exercises. Like, I mean, I guess in, in maybe connected to the skin in this girl, like how, I guess just like Palestine as a, as a muse for you, you wrote about it. And I think in the acknowledgements about, you know, kind of, I think you, you, you call it a quote privilege, you know, you have a, an Anglo last name mm -hmm. and, you know, but just obviously all the troubles with, um, with, with citizenship and getting a, a green card or tourist visa or whatever it would be to go and do the research there. So I guess mm -hmm. I'm just kind of wondering, I guess I'm just getting at like the seeds for the book. Like why, why this story, how did you get into the story? Was it, you know, is it about, is it about, um, you know, Betty, the, the narrator, is it about Nua, Nua, like, how did you get into the book and, and maybe some of the research that you, that took you into the skin of this girl? Yeah, sure. I, you know, the, there are a lot of levels of answers to that question. I mean, cause I've working on it on and off for about 15 years. Oh, I'd wow. set it aside and written another novel mm -hmm. and I got an agent and failed to sell. And I kind of picked it up again after a while, whenever I was in an MFA program. Um, so my, I mean, I guess to answer the heart of the question, I mean, I'm a second generation Arab American. Betty Romani, my protagonist with the blue skin, is a second generation Arab American. Mm -hmm. And I started writing the seeds of the novel maybe a handful of years after 9 11. Um, I was a college senior when it happened. Mm -hmm. And I really think about my Arab, sort of the Arab side of my family, that identity in two parts or two chapters sort of like before 9-11 and after 9-11 hmm. and that there was something that I felt before it 
that I didn't need to define. I mean, it was in the church and the family names and, you know, the family stories and the food and how I related to, you know, my elder generations. Um, but, but there was just, there wasn't a big Lebanese Syrian community uh, where I was from. I mean, quite dense, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at the population centers throughout the, the country, but uh, you know, in my school, I, I think I was one of maybe two mm-hmm. students who had Lebanese Syrian ancestry. Um, but whenever I went to college, you know, one of my dearest friends to this day I grew up in Saudi Arabia. She's Pakistani. Um, and she was talking to me about actually in an interview for her podcast about mm-hmm. this experience of coming to this sort of small rural Western Pennsylvania town um, mm-hmm. that felt really alien from what she was, uh, you know, which she grew up with and then came to our house and had all this food that she was very familiar with. Mm. Um, so that, that there was something like just very um, sort of warm and I, you know, I, I didn't need to be able to, to frame it or talk about it. But then after 9-11 um, and sort of the rise in, you know, anti-Arab sentiment and Islamoph- Islamophobia, I felt for the first time, and I, I get into this in the skin and it's girl too, that, identity often forms against something else mm-hmm. um, or, or whenever you feel that, that you're trying to define what you are, what you aren't matters as well. Uh-huh. Um, so I was thinking about my identity in that context as well, whenever I was starting to write the story um, and, you know, as a queer woman and, you know, sort of growing up in a conservative Arab American family, I mean, there's obviously stories that I, I didn't tell or, or, or that weren't told or identities that weren't uh, modeled for me um, or, or, you know, secrets that I didn't want to share with my family. So mm-hmm. in thinking about, you know, how do we frame the story of ourselves and, and starting to write this uh, sort of the, the early scenes of this book, I was really interested in Palestine because I mean, there's a whole you know, cultural identity that, that is often defined against something else. I mean, it's such a conflict-ridden place. Um, and, you know, it really struggles for the attention that it deserves in, in American media. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I, I just felt like there was a lot to learn through that lens. Um, and then later on in the process, uh, I, I really got hooked on this idea of um, traditional Palestinian soap. Like, here's a, a cube of it. Um, okay. And it's, you know, in, it's an interesting object because it's made with just a few ingredients that are all very local to, to the city of Nablus. So, you know, uh-huh. olive oil, the, traditionally the, the ashes of a certain plant that grew in the River Jordan, the water in the area that was famed for being good. You know, like the way we say that New York water makes the best bagels, uh-huh. like Nabalsi water would make the best soap. Okay. Um, so... At that point in the writing process, um, I felt like it was time for me to go there because there's only so much that you can learn through books. Um, I mean, at that point, I had studied Arabic for several years. I, you know, had my own community and, you know, I obviously found a lot of academic texts to to research the history of of the city and and everything else. Um, But when I went to the Middle East, you know, I had my father's last name and I I read as pretty white. and I've all, I'm also aware that people with, you know, traditional Palestinian last names or, you know, are, are not as white presenting have a much harder time at the airport um, and sometimes don't get into the country. Hmm. Um, so I had a lot of that 
in my mind and I, I was worried about, you know, traveling, but, you know, I, I just, you know, aware of the privilege that I, I didn't get harassed and I was able mm -hmm. to conduct my research. Um, I spent some time in Nablus. I toured these sort of six and 800 year old soap factories. Wow. Um, you know, actually four years to the day almost that I was there. Uh, and, and came back with a lot to write about. And I, I don't think I could have written this book without going there physically. Like that was an essential part of the, the creative process as well as sort of the ethical process as well. Hmm. Thank you for that. You talk about going mm -hmm. there and the, uh, I can't think of a simple word. The epigraph is, you know, quote, we travel like other people, but do not return to anything. Mm -hmm. I want to say from Darwish. Uh, Mahmoud Darwish, yes. Right. And just the idea of, you know, of Palestine as a place, as an idea, um, you know, there's that, there's that really, in some ways testy, but in some ways almost, almost humorous, like dark humor with, uh, you know, where the two sisters are at the interrogation at the, you know, with the Israeli soldiers, right? And, it's, you know, they're like, there is no Palestine, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, obviously, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the whole, some of the bulk of the, the, you know, the bulk of the conflict is ideas of right to return, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder what if kind of the epigraph came last, if that was kind of a, a jumping off point, if it was a, if it was a first kind of a jumping off point for the book and kind of what you were going with going for with that. Sure. I mean, that that I mean, Darwish's poems matter a lot to me. And, and th those particular lines came pretty early. I mean, the poem is really about not being able to go home to, you know, the, the, the place that you knew and that, that you're you know historically connected to. Um, so you tell stories of that place, mm -hmm. uh, and that an existence and uh, the the poetry of a, of a place can be passed from one to another. And if you can't access that place physically, then then sort of the imaginative register and the language and the songs and the poetry of that place keep it alive, um, mm. along with sort of the hope to be able to to go back. And I mean, you know. I'm a writer. I'm not a politician. I'm getting into the the, the particulars, but um, I mean that the, there is that hope that runs through a lot of Darwish's poetry, and and certainly for my characters as well. Hmm. Does epistolary mean? Does it have to be literally letters? Like, I mean, is it? You know, the the book is Betty is the narrator. She's speaking at the grave of of Nua, her Nuha, her her aunt, her auntie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Betty herself has a tough decision to make about. Should she leave the country with her lover, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know that's where where the narration takes place. I mean, would this book be epistolary? Yeah, I mean, I, I think typically when we talk about it, we do mean letters, but um, it it is a direct address novel, and sure. I mean, there is sort of the <laughs> the one chapter that is titled epistolary that is a lot right. of the the letters that um, Betty exchanges with her friend in school, hmm. um, but. I noticed as a sort of my thinking about that style is that there are a lot, there's a lot of queer literature that uses direct address and not just mm. to a general you, but to a very specific you. And I uh -huh. think, you know, that decision in this book came quite late. I had already had it on submission with agents for most of 2020 um, before I realized that there was, you know, that kind of last step that would help people understand oh, wow. or, you know, anchor the story you know, um, from Betty, the narrator to her aunt, 
um, but also contain all the things that that they they have this shared knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but in thinking about like why why does that work especially well for queer literature? I think that for me it's like wrestling with the agency that storytelling can give you. Mm. Um, and sort of experimenting with your voice for the first time and being aware of your authority as a narrator and trying to to use it well and mm. and to use it very specifically. I mean, there's a, a great deal of relativity re- relativity that okay. is part of sort of the queer aesthetic. So like speaking directly to a single person sort of contains, uh-huh. you know, all the universes of this novel um, uh-huh. while being still quite intimate. Yes, um, I don't. I mean, you you make the point incredibly well. I don't. Um, I I just think of like I mean, just even the book is like, the book is very specific in some ways. It's very specific about these specific Palestinian Israeli conflict, you know, whatever you want to call it. But it's also there are also so many more universal ideas, right? That's, yeah, that's you I talk mean, about it. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. and it, I mean, it is very much a a, a Palestinian story, but at the mm-hmm. same time. I mean, you've noticed the the folkloric sort of mythic thread that runs through it too, with the retelling of the the story of the Tower of Babel, which right. you know, in you know, I grew up in the church and I was very familiar with the story as, you know, God was upset at at humanity for having built this great tower after the flood and felt like it was an act of hubris, and mm. you know, God destroyed this tower and made everyone in the world speak different languages. Um, so it was really a story about division and difference um, and and punishment. But in The Skin and Its Girl, Nuha kind of rewrites this story and, and says that, you know, God was this sort of ectoplasmic creature that mm. was assigned to monitor Earth by you know, no, no decision that anybody remembers having made. And, mm. you know, the hum- humankind was trying to collaborate and cooperate and celebrate their survival. Um, and you know, sort of the idea of buildings uh, runs through the whole book. I mean, you know, the towers of yeah. soap whenever it's sort of stacked to dry, and these sort of columns, and the, the soap factory itself, and the how the different houses that Betty grows up mm. in. Um, but by the end of the novel, it's sort of presenting this this image of the second flood. You know, climate change, I suppose, mm. um, and and bringing us back into this wider humanity where where we we do need to remember how to collaborate um, mm. and that, that, you know, oftentimes creating possibilities um, you need to work with what is and not with what should be. Um, mm. So, you know, it, it's not just about one conflict, but sort of about this, you know, the positive and negative of humanity, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Very interesting um, that you were sitting with that during, I'm um, something's out on submission, but you're doing editing. It was interesting that you were sitting with that during, during COVID, you know, you're talking about <laughs> you know, collaboration in the world and division. And I mean, unfortunately it was exhibit A for that, right? In a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there were a lot of smaller communities. I mean, it's certainly was aware of a lot of the writer's relief work that individual, you know, presses and, and community organizations did. And I mean, I, I think that just sort of highlights that it's okay to have a bunch of different communities that are fundamentally, mm. you know, different in purpose from one another but they can all be doing similar right. you know pro-social work <laughs> i yeah, want to yeah. believe in that Mutual <laughs> I mean, aid societies and such yeah but of course my, my wife's in healthcare and saw a lot of the, the, oh, the negative too yes. so oh boy 
the the book starts off with um with betty i mean she she died at birth which obviously sounds oxymoronic right she she died came back to life if you will or never was dead you know i don't know how you would how you would say that but um they, they were literally talking you know the doctor was literally like what time you know what's the time of death and came back to life or if you will as you know blue um mm -hmm. silver streaks but but blue like not like not like oh that person's not breathing looks a little blue like blue blue I mean, like cobalt blue. blue, right? Like you mm -hmm. see on the cover. Um, the parents at the time, um, her parents have a rift. Is that the idea was there was going to be an adoption as soon as uh, Betty was to be born? Um, you know, pretty much all the papers have pretty much been signed. She was to be adopted. That's where, you know, we get the whole idea of her of her difference, which is a very salient one, which is in her skin color that is a blue that doesn't exist necessarily. You know, so her mom, Tashi, I'm sorry, remind me of her full name. Oh, uh, Natasha Rumani, and then Natasha. her family just calls her Tashi. Right. So, you know, she's somebody who's had a lot of trauma in her life. She lost her father at a young age. She was maybe, what, 12 or 13? Mm -hmm. Early right? adolescence. And I mean, I don't know, is she, would you say, I mean, she is she diagnosed as a schizophrenic? Is it not that serious? I, I mean, she definitely has, I mean, she's had su suicidal ideation. She's... Um, and many times tried to die by suicide. And she's also, you know, if not brilliant, very smart, does really um, good work. But the, the idea is like, it, was this a pathological thing? Was this like a, a form a way of like dealing with her trauma? But she's known to be like, not very neat, right? Doesn't keep a neat house, et cetera, et cetera. And I know there's a lot there about, you know, kind of the unfair ideas we have about women and expectations of women. But um, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit about um, about the character of Tashi, and just kind of that that pull between her traumas and her job and wanting to be a good mother and all of that. Yeah, I, thanks for asking about Tashi. Not everybody does. And she was really um, early and interesting character that mm -hmm. was also sort of tough to figure out. Um, so sure, she has a, a pretty fat medical record and, and there are diagnoses in it. Uh, but like Betty, you know, she has her own life and her own existence. And there have been times at periods of crisis where medical professionals try to apply some labels. Um, uh -huh. You know, sh she hears her, her dead father's voice um, whenever she's trying to, to measure up to the standards that, you know, her mm -hmm. profession and her family set for her. Um, she alleviates that by uh, obeying his instructions. Like for instance, you know, when she was doing really well at work after, you know, she'd given birth to Betty, but Betty was with Nuha and, and Tashi returned to Portland where she was an adjunct professor in neuroscience. And she's kind of getting her ducks back in a row, but she's, you know, sleeping in, I think what her mother called the like halfway house for underfunded scientists yeah. on a futon was, on the floor. That was a great, that was a great turn of phrase. You, got, you must have kind of laughed at yourself or pat yourself on the back for that one. <laughs> I, I have a lot of underpaid academic friends, um. Um, but so she's hearing her father's voice and he's, he's telling her to find suicide and bury it. So sometimes it's these like toenail clippings or pillowcase and she takes it down to the, the park that, that backs up to the apartment building where she lives. And she's like burying these items in the dirt to sort of alleviate the stress. So she, yeah. 
she has these strange behaviors. Um, you know, she's definitely gone through periods of, of diagnosable depression. I mean, she spent time institutionalized. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been, you know, long years of her life where she's been completely okay. And it's not, you know, when I was writing these characters, it was not a surprise to discover that she's the one character that doesn't try to explain why Betty is blue. Mm. Um, you know, that, that blue as a color doesn't have the cultural context in America that it does in some some other parts of the world. Mm. Um, and as I wrote draft upon draft of this novel, I realized that not quite explaining what the blue means was actually a better opportunity than trying to explain what it does mean because so many of the other characters are trying to tell Betty what that's about. And and Tashi has experienced that too. So, you know, she's not a, a classically maternal person, right? Um, but she's a really good mother for Betty. Yeah, and, exactly. And, you know, the her, her family struggles to see her in that way. Um, but she's also... Um, you know, shouldering a lot of guilt too, because sort of the, the way it all works out is you know, Romani, the Romani family um, has had this soap factory in Nablus for centuries. And, you know, after the Nakba in 1948, you know, Foundation of the State of Israel, the economy in Palestine um, changed quite a bit. So, you know, the family's soap fortunes struggled for many decades. And finally, you know, the fortunes, the, the family's fortunes going the way that they did. Um, Tashi's mother decided to sell off the factory. So sell off the sort of last connection that the family had to this, this land. Right. And use that money to put her kids through college. So Tashi mm. is a beneficiary of sort of hundred year, hundreds of years of, of mm. lineage and family reputation. And, you know, her family is, is always reminding her in some way of how she's not living up to that. Mm. Um, so, so she's got a pretty big burden to carry. Uh, yeah, definitely. There's, um, you know, so there's, um, so Nuha is kind of introduced through, um, you know, so she, so Tashi does not end up giving um, Betsy up for adoption. Nuha kind of, you know, comes into the story there. She's quite a rebel in many ways. Um, her sister is Say- Saida, is that how you pronounce that? I'm sorry. Her, uh, her sister-in-law Saida. Sister-in-law, yeah. Pardon me. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so she's the grandmother, right? She's Tashi's mom. So we get mm-hmm. to know them through, you know, through the uh, through the birth. And there was a lot of kind of intrigue around that, around the birth and the adoption. And so, like you said, you know, kind of disappointment in Tashi and just those, those burdens on her. The coincidence, which which the the narrator writes is kind of like there are no coincidences in life kind of thing or coincidence is always around, is mm-hmm. that the day of the birth, the, the F-16s of the Israeli army, I would assume, uh, they come mm-hmm. through Nablus. And they obliterate the 600 year soap, fa- you know, soap factory, like you talk mm-hmm. about. And, you know, in the families, in the Romani families, like, okay, was, was it because the girl was born that the soap factory was done for? Was it vice versa? Just, you know, trying to assign meaning to it. Um, I wonder about the the timing, the coincidence and how you, how you drew those two together. Sure. I mean, this was written you know, like I said, I, I started writing it in a handful of years after 9-11, uh, but the, the novel itself takes place starting the Battle of Nablus historical event, um, April 2nd, 2002. Mm. Um, so th- that was a, a really eventful time. You know, there was, you know, post 9-11, um, the U.S. had invaded Afghanistan. We we're, you know, trying to to create this focus argument to inv- invade Iraq. Mm. Um, but also, 
you know, the second intifada uprising had started in, in Israel and Palestine. Um, and it was a, a much more violent conflict than the first intifada in the eighties had been. Um, so it was sort of this kind of younger generation, um, you know, trying to, to stand up to a, a lot of the sort of militant oppression and occupation and, you know, the, you know, the, the difficulties of daily life in the West Bank and Gaza and, uh, as part of that, you know, Nablus has historically been a, a center of Palestinian resistance and identity. So it was a high up on the target list whenever Israel strikes mm. back. So, um, you know, as I write at the end of, I think, chapter one, that coincidence just sometimes plays a, ro- a role. And, yeah. and Nuha Rumani, kind of, she, she played this, this role in the family as the matriarch, um, sort of creating a, a certain amount of agency and power for herself being a storyteller mm-hmm. and taking up a lot of space with the stories that she tells. And a lot of that is sort of keys off of the Romani family history. Um, so she's 79 years old at the start of the story. She's definitely um, pretty old to be taking care of a baby, but whenever mm-hmm. she finds out that Tashi's planning to give Betty up for adoption um, and she sees that Betty is, is cobalt blue, um, she steps in and she, she, says that she's going to make herself useful one more time and, and right. help raise this baby. Uh, because, I mean, her job has, has traditionally been to make meaning. And I mean, as you mentioned earlier, um, the, the beginning of the story, um, Betty is, is stillborn. But when mm-hmm. she does come back to life, she turns this cobalt blue. And the family, you know, her parents had recently divorced because of an infidelity um, there's a sort of larger family feud around Saida's having sold the, the soap factory, mm-hmm. um, you know, 15 or 20 years before then. The, a lot of the storytelling is interested in this idea of aftermath and what next. Sure. Um, you know, when things are broken, as so many things in our world are, mm. um, you know, we, we can sit around and, and, and point out <laughs> where the cracks are or, mm. you know, we can use that, that observation to try to fix them and, and to try to make a meaning that we can move into. So, I mean, Nuha steps into that role in Betty's life as well, but the coincidence of having the soap factory destroyed that just helped her in her okay. task. Okay. No, I mean, you talk about those two ways of dealing with those things and the first one's a lot more fun though, right? Just kind of sit back and point fingers and not have to do anything <laughs> about it. It's a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot easier. Um, <laughs> I, I engage in some of that myself. I'm, I'm right? not immune. <laughs> doesn't necessarily help things, but it's... Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like you talk about Nuha, Nuha steps into this role as kind of a, you know, a grandmotherly and aunt. I mean, she's literally the auntie, you know, figure. Mm-hmm. So you talk about, you know, trying to assign meaning and trying to figure out things in life. And a lot of times we, I mean, cultures all throughout history, right? we've come up with stories and ways of explaining God and natural disasters and you know, so Nuha tells stories about gazelles and, and ogres. How do you pronounce the word? Is it, is it Dijin? Uh, Jin. Jin. Um, it, it, sounds, it sounds a lot like our, our genie. I mean. Okay. Okay, right. And, and you know, Babel and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of allegory, a lot of stories that she even admits herself. And, you know, even some that are more closer to, to real life, but they're not necessarily the 100% the truth, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's an exaggerator. The whole family She's knows an exaggerator. that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we have the parallel stories, you know, um, Betty and there was, was it, it so it was Elisabeth, Elisabeth? Elisabeth, yeah, it's the sort of Arabic version of Elizabeth. I, that's why I figured, okay, yeah, about her being like the original in the family who had the blue skin color, right? And, you know, Nuha tells about these stories and, and 
and Betty gets to know these stories. Um, and in many ways, Betty tells her stories with a, I'm sorry, not Betty, um, Nuha with a, with a moral, right? Like in, in some ways, some of the stories are like to hell with what people think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, own person. Mm-hmm. they're, they're more sort of radical morals or, or, uh, you know, have your own checkbook if you're a woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, sort of the, the lessons that she has learned as a, a queer divorcee, um, trying to live a life that's completely separate from the family while still being the family matriarch. Right. Um, she, she's imparting them to Betty in, in her storytelling. Yeah. And, and so, you know, through these notebooks that, um, that Betty unearths, you know, years later after, after Nuha has passed away, and so those parallel stories, you know, we talked about already how Betty is, you know, what do I do? Do I leave my mom? Do I go to, you know, this other country with my lover, with my my girlfriend, girlfriend, wife? Beloved. Beloved. There you go. Beloved. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, and it's also very sad because Nuha was her own person. She was very upfront. I mean, she had some great one-liners like in the interrogations and, you know, all the time she had some great sarcastic remarks, but because of, you know, because of homophobia, because of maybe, you know, I don't know how much of that was internalized because of the external, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. The time she grew up in, the whatever, but she, you know, she wrote about it in her notebooks. Um, tell us about those, par- about her affair, like, I don't mean affair, like in the way we think of it romantically, mm-hmm. but her affair, her times with, with C, who she calls C, mm-hmm. and kind of how that, what that fleshes out about her, about her as a character. Sure. And and you're right on. She Nuha does have a huge amount of internalized homophobia. I mean, sort of her cultural background and her generation, um, and certainly um, putting at risk the, the authority that she does have in the family, because mm-hmm. certainly not everybody um, would be supportive. Um, e- even being divorced uh, was sort of a mark against her uh-huh. in a lot of parts of the family. Uh, but you know, after she is is divorced, I mean, it's sort of a marriage of convenience. I won't give anything away. Yeah, we're tra- um, we're, gonna, we're gonna stay away from the plot spoilers. Here, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll skip the spoilers. <laughs> um, so she she goes to the teachers' college at, at Mills College in Oakland, and she gets her teaching degree in history. Um, she's a a school teacher, and you know, she kind of sets up her own life. I mean, she's mm-hmm. an activist. Um, she meets a woman that that really loves her um, and, and, and wants her to be out um, and, and wants to, to start a committed life with her. But Nuha is just unable and unwilling to do that and, and to live her life as an out woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so C kind of moves on, um, but they're still in the same city and they are still very much in each other's lives now and again. Um, you know, Tashi lived with Nuha for a period of her own teenage years mm-hmm. and, and was sort of aware of, of this relationship, but it, right. it was just something that wasn't spoken about. Yeah. And, you know, you know, Betty's growing up in a completely different generation and, and can see it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously feels the resonance with her own situation that, you know, you, you have a life that you know and love and what are you willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. in order to be with, with someone that, that loves you and, and you care about and, you know, that, that you both like and need is sort of one of the novel's definitions of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
kind of stay away from the plot spoilers, kind of like mm-hmm. the last two plot points I kind of talk about that that leave us maybe 80 pages out or something. But you know, so mm-hmm. so Betty, Betty by the I guess she's seven or eight, seven, she finally does go to school. You know, there's this idea of what do we do? Uh, you know, her parents, Adam and, and Tashi, are like, you know, do how much do we take her out in public? And there's the whole scene at the airport and you know, where Tashi decides not to do the flight at first and I think ends up doing it. And, you know, do we drive her? How much should she be out in public? And she, unfortunately, when she does go to school, she really is made fun of and, you know, and treated horribly in her class until, uh, man, Felix got, Felix got his, huh? Felix got his comeuppance, huh? <laughs> Woof, man. <laughs> like like so many screenwriters that that write heartfelt and heart heartwarming um stories about teenage characters i uh, i did get to to get back at the bully in yeah, my story you <laughs> yeah you did sorry felix um but uh you know so so she they do this uh this pen pal program and she gets to know anna through her through this through the writing at first it's anonymous and then it's not anonymous so there is that that lifeline to the you know the quote unquote the real world the outside world which is, is such a nice ray of sunshine. So Saida and Anuha, the, the sisters-in-law, they decide uh, 2011, I think it ends up becoming or so, they, to go to Palestine, to go back. Kelly, who was the second husband of, of Saida, had passed away. And it was just like, you know, now's the time, we're getting older. And, you know, there's a lot that goes on there. We talk about the interrogation, just hard for them to even get into, into Palestine with all the checkpoints and such. So... That really, you know, that's kind of that sets up some really important revelations and really, you know, interesting denouement. I was looking for the word, you know, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so many themes in the story that are so interesting and really make you think. Um, we talked about, you know, I'm I'm oversimplifying, but just ideas of difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's Betty's literally, you know, the the blue skin person, just being yourself. The ideas of coming out. Um, I was really, you talked a little bit about before, like, like post 9-11, it wasn't a huge part of the book. It was maybe a couple pages, but just like the, the assimilation um, that Saida did, like right after 9-11, you know, put out certain floor mats and took in certain ones and just how much about, you know, how much do we tell the world, which again, could be a small thing. How much do we tell the world about us being Palestinian, but just in general, how much do we tell the world about being queer about, you know, so many things. Is it oversimplifying is it reductive to say that you really do create some strong women <laughs> i mean these these were the characters that bullied their way to the center of the the story so i would say that <laughs> it was like survival yeah, of, no choice, of right? the, the strongest yeah. here huh. um but i was also really interested in betty's father adam um mm-hmm. who who starts out as a as an antagonist and uh, you know tashi and adam as as betty's parents are not on the same page where, where mm-hmm. tashi is con- Tend to not assign meaning, sort of the one character who who is content to not assign too much meaning to Betty. Um, whereas Adam, with his background in in law and medicine, um, it's just a very intelligent, educated, um, sort of almost divorced from everything that isn't intellectual uh, hmm. kind of character. That that he really wants her to go to all the, these doctors' appointments. He, he wants her to go to school, um, and some of that, you know, really is, you know, a lot of pragmatic knowledge about child development based on science and evidence-based medicine. But at the same time, um, you know, Tashi knows that common sense that Betty is really going to struggle there. And, you know, you mentioned sort of a lot of dimensions of difference um, in talking about the novel. And I Mm -hmm. I think that's really it when I'm 
like thinking about identity, it's not really one identity. It's, it's um, sort of that idea of contrast or defining yourself against something else that I was, you know, discussing right. earlier that, you know, we have all of these, these identities and, 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 you know, roles inside of us that, that come to the fore, depending on the situation that we're in. And, mm-hmm. you know, someone like Nuha, who, you know, <laughs> if you kind of stack, stack up the isms that we could easily identify, mm-hmm. you know, that she, she faces over the course of the story of ageism and racism and, mm. um, you know, homophobia and internalized homophobia and um, xenophobia. Like that, that there's just yeah. a lot that each of these characters has to wade through kind of, you know, depending on the situation that they're in and that they're all really trying to help Betty navigate that. Right. Um, so, it, you know, it's not reductive. I mean, it's just, it's a fact of life. And, mm-hmm. and I was interested in how, how these characters do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know I've, I'm a cis woman. This is the body that I, I've been living my life in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I guess I'm sort of most familiar with the way of navigating the world in this body. And, and that sort of informed a lot, a lot of, you know, different angles of Nuha and, and yeah. Tashi and Saida and, and, and Betty. You, you do, you have such a, a, a light touch, but such a, um, a skillful one with, with family strife and, you know, long memories. And you, know, we all have families where, you know, somebody insulted somebody's haircut one time, 70 years ago, and, you know, it comes back to them and they're still <laughs> upset about it. And that affects other generations right yeah but, like know, a fine wine a grudge can age <laughs> exactly and and just the idea of long memory i mean you know there's there's so much about about palestine and israel where it's like you know oh no there was there was no palestine before or there was no israel before and just this idea of you know a 600 year building right and just the generations and generations and generations and the stories that are told and you know the murder soap people can can read about that one and you know the business agreement that that you know the the branches of the Romani family have been separate and come together and what's you know come together at least kind of um, ostensibly or on surface level they're what basically is a business agreement right you know just the idea of the pull of home like how most people you know I would probably include myself who are fairly ignorant of of the conflict you know we think maybe back to 1947. Right. But you just you make this point, you know, about I mean, just these are generations and generations. And for one family to have a 600 year soap company. Right. And for that to go up in in, you know, what, 20 minutes or whatever, or two minutes or one minute is just um, really something to reflect on for sure. Yeah. And I mean, contemporary history always feels very dense because, you know, we're wading through a volume of, of details, you know, that we have mm-hmm. the archive to, to understand, right. you know, what happened on such and such a day of such and such a year. And, you know, since 1948, things have gotten progressively worse because, mm-hmm. you know, there there is a wall and there, you know, the borders do get less and less permeable and the mm-hmm. children don't play together. Um, you know, that the, there there is a, a strand of this novel where I'm writing very much pre 1948, and you know, for mm. instance, the village of Malu, where which was a uh, Muslim and Christian uh-huh. village, where you know, uh, you know, Jewish settlers from are not settlers, but um, Jewish res- residents of the next village would graze their their flock on the neighboring hillside. That that mm. there is a history of a shared history of yes. of cooperation that 
you know, I, I think it's lost in the sort of overdetermination of, of identities. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously with the, the deadly force that gets applied to, to this conflict, I mean, over and over, we've been seeing it, um, you know, heat up since last September or October, and it's very rarely reported on in our media now. Mm. Um, but it's distressing to see. And I, I hope, you know, I, I don't, I don't lean so far into these issues that uh, that this book will be like a, like a, a foreign policy <laughs> type sure. of novel. I, I I'm really interested in the Romani family storytelling mm-hmm. and and the humor of it and the 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 long family feuds and you know this mm-hmm. Palestinian soap which I'm completely obsessed with. I mean, mm-hmm. Nablus is a really cool city to walk around in, mm-hmm. um, and I just you know, I, I think you can read the skin and its girl for the family story and for the characters and the humor. And if it provides just like one window or one touch point mm-hmm. into a part of the world that, you know, you, you might have not encountered before, then then I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's so it's so hackneyed, you know, but it's just like you talk about like, you know, librarians and and, you know, reading and empathy and being able to travel to different places. And, you know, though this is fiction, these are, these are real people to me, these are real people, you know? Mm-hmm. And we talk about, I'm sorry, how do you pronounce, is it, Ma, Ma, how do you pronounce the, the village? Uh, Malu. And, you know, that's, you know, some of the people said, oh, you know, that's where Jesus jumped when he was a kid, you know, it's not too far Mount from Tabor. Nazareth, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, Mount Tabor, right. And so, you know, it's just, it just so much more makes it real, makes the people real. Like, you know, like you talk about a lot of times the, maybe the stories are big in the news and then, you know, just fade away, but there's, there's still the daily lives. There's still, you know, the woman working the desk at the, with the glasses, you know, at the, at the interrogation, there's still, you know, people coming back. I, I was so just, you know, I guess we'll kind of end with like, you know, does just the pull of home. If I read it correctly, I mean, Nua, you know, she's by the time she goes to Palestine, she's in her mid eighties. Yeah, that's right. Right. And she, mm-hmm. I think she spent seven years in Nablus or maybe seven years in, Right. Um, mm-hmm. Not a lot of time, in other words, but just like how it just speaks to home and and wanting to go back and, you know, often in this case, maybe not finding it at all or not finding it like it was. But that to me was just so interesting about how about her, somebody who was so you know engaged in, like you said, activism and lived in the Bay Area, and you know, knew new English and lived in the in States for so long. But home is always home. Yeah, I mean, home is very tricky. I mean, it, it it obsesses me too as someone i mean I, i've moved so many times i mean mm-hmm. i think since i met my wife we've we've moved something like nine times in 14 hey. years I wow. we have the <laughs> plastic tubs in the garage permanently loaded ready yes. for the next place how do we construct home i mean i i'm interested in that question as a queer person i mean you know what relationships are central like who who are we with when we feel like we're at home hmm. and you know, I think that that's such a human question. And I mean, it's a, a site of, of conflict whenever, you know, multiple groups say, no, this is my home. No, this is my home. Well, you know, mm. the, the novel is like really critiquing systems um, mm-hmm. more than any sort of one identity, because I, I think we do share that pull to home. And I, I think that is real. And, you know, that this, you know, also the desire to make meaning and tell stories. I mean, I think that's like a species defining behavior for, mm-hmm. for, for humans. And, you know, you know, where do we build that fire and where do we sit in that circle and, and share those stories and, mm-hmm. and who is in that circle? Mm-hmm. I think it is possible to have 
many homes. I mean, mm. almost unavoidable. I mean, I, I think of writers like Atlas Monroe, who, <laughs> beautiful fiction about one part of, of the planet sure. where, where she's lived and that, that you can just draw from this very deep well um, from, from one spot on the planet. But I, I think that that's you the know, exception, not the rule. I think, it, it, I, I think yeah. for a lot of a lot of people, it is sure. not not everywhere, but yeah. um, you know, certainly in our country, people move around a lot. Mm. Well, I, I'm already thinking of uh, one coworker that I'm to give this book to, and it's a book that I'm definitely going to be. I can never say the word evangelizing about in public life as well as the uh, public life as far as the podcast and private as well. Mm. Such an interesting read. We we left out some of the interesting plot points and some of the kind of twists on identity and such. But um, I just, you know, congratulations. It's awesome talking to you. I'm really uh, looking forward to, to seeing it out in the world and, um, you know, maybe talk to you when the next project comes around. But I just uh, appreciate you talking to me and, and thanks for, for writing this incredible book. And I, I know it's going to be crazy in the next week, month, but hopefully it's a fun crazy. Well, thank you so much, Peter. I mean, I think this podcast is a, just a beautiful act of literary citizenship and it's really an honor to talk to you, uh, uh, you know, about my book. My, my debut novel. <laughs> yes. It doesn't first, get old. <laughs> there you go. Well, I appreciate those compliments. And again, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure and uh, have a great rest of the evening. Thank you, Peter. You too. Thank you. pleasure has been to speak today with Sarah Cipher. Continue good luck to her with her writing and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 180 with Jennifer Dawn Carlson. She is the author of Merchants of the Right, Gun Sellers and the Crisis of American Democracy, and an assistant associate professor of sociology and government and public policy at the University of Arizona. She's also a 2022 MacArthur Fellow. The episode will air on May 2nd, which is the pub day for her book. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Sarah Cipher, whose work, like the skin in his girl, gives you chills at will